Well, good afternoon, everybody. Really great to see you here at the EU public meeting. I hope you've got a Bible there. It'd be really helpful for you today. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19. Yes, that's going to make next week particularly interesting since we have chapters 20 to 28 to do in one talk. No worries. But uh, today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19 because there's some really useful things here I think that God has to tell us about himself, about this world and about us. So uh, it's great that Ali has prayed and we're committing this time to God because we want to pray that God actually be active through his word as is promised by his spirit amongst us here today. So I've called this reflection on God's word, your gods are not gods, the offensive gospel of Jesus. Last week, the incomplete gospel of Jesus. This week, the offensive gospel of Jesus. One of the things about having young children, like when you have a baby, is that uh, necessarily your sleep patterns just take on a whole new shape uh, because babies don't know anything about trying to sleep at night time and so uh, my wife would be up feeding the um, newborn and then maybe I'd be trying to settle the newborn down and uh, since we've had five kids I've done this many, many times and invariably sometimes you're standing there and you're going, okay, I just want to take my mind off just sort of standing here so you turn on the TV which is then you always regret that five seconds later because you think there's nothing on TV, why am I doing this? And then you see all sorts of ads that you'd never, and contraptions that you'd never sort of imagined before. In particular, I met the ad master. <laughs> Who has seen or heard of the ad master? Many, see, like it's a very, it's very high recognition in our society, the ad master. For a completely useless product, that's pretty impressive. Um, who's actually bought an ad master? No, let's see, let's hand straight up, let's go, let's be proud. Wow, four, four of you. And you guys not related, right? So that's, we're talking about four actual households that bought an ad master. Testify, testify to me. Is it good? Yeah, my mum got one, I don't know where it is anymore. <laughs> okay, yes. Any other testimony? Is it brilliant? Is it fantastic? Yeah, it works the abs. It works the abs. <laughs> and Ron, yeah, I'm not going to make any comment. Okay, yeah. It makes a really good close rate. It makes a good close rate. Wow, multifunctional. There you go. <laughs> what a tragedy to invest real money into a product that has questionable delivery. <laughs> I'm not going to, I don't want to be taken to court or sued by the Abmaster people. Um, though the only, uh, interestingly, the only ad on the internet I could find for the Abmaster, I think was in, some, was in some language I couldn't read. Was it Swedish? It looked like Swedish. It looked like sort of Ikea language. Um, <laughs> anyway, but uh, I don't know what that means. But anyway... Of course, there are many more tragic stories of people who buy a lie. And uh, periodically we hear about these in the media. People who invest their life savings into get-rich-quick schemes. Again, the wonders of the web, man. Last night, I, I, on like just three direct hits, I was off, one was offering me how to make $300 in 15 minutes. The next one was offering him to make $500 in 20 minutes and the next one was $1,000 in 30 minutes. 
Um, there are just all these sort of get-rich-quick schemes, and people, some people have invested you know, life savings into some, these sort of schemes. What a tragedy that is to invest so much in something of so little value that promises big, but actually it imprisons you in poverty and debt. What a tragedy. Well, the New Testament tells us that that is the tragic reality for every single person who doesn't invest fully in Jesus. That you have fully committed yourself otherwise. If you haven't fully invested in Jesus, you have fully committed yourself to a doomed investment scheme. You've signed up with dodgy brothers and they're taking you for a ride and it will be to your destruction if you don't invest fully with Jesus. And the point that I want us to reflect on today that I think comes out of this section of God's Word is that what the Gospel of Jesus does, what the Gospel of Jesus does as we announce to God's world that Jesus is alive, that he's been made Lord in Christ, what that announcement about Jesus actually does is it exposes the lie, the lies of our culture. It unmasks the idols of our culture, those things that are not actually God's, but in whom we fully invest, who we give ourselves to. The Gospel of Jesus unmasks those idols. It says to our society, your gods are not God's. So this is what we're going to look at today, the offensive gospel of Jesus. But we're going to start by looking at the powerful gospel of Jesus because that's what Luke does in this section of Acts chapter 19. So if you've got your Bible there, it would be really helpful to have it open at this point. Acts chapter 19, verse 11 to 20. Paul here is in Ephesus. We, met, we saw that last week and there was Luke's just given us a summary of Paul's ministry in Ephesus in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 19. We learn there that Paul stayed in Ephesus two years, which was a long time for him. The reason he stayed there, it was a key centre for trade, for religion, for politics. And by ministering the gospel of Jesus in Ephesus, the gospel of Jesus, we read, went out to all the Jews and the non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles throughout the whole region of Asia Minor. So, let's have a look at some detail about his ministry there from chapter 19, verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. That's not too bad for a dirty handkerchief, is it? Like, wow, touches Paul, then you take him somewhere and they're healed. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Gentiles living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. 
A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Here is Luke's account of the powerful gospel of Jesus going forward in Ephesus. Now, when I say the gospel of Jesus, what, am I, what do I mean by that? Because that's his Christian jargon, isn't it? If we've been reading through Acts of the Apostles, we know what the gospel of Jesus is, this message about Jesus. It's this declaration that Jesus, who was dead, has now been raised to life by God, his heavenly Father. He's now been made by God, Lord and Christ. And through his name, through trusting in him, now forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit is offered to all people everywhere. That's in brief sort of the summary of the Gospel of Jesus in the book of Acts. Here you see the powerful Gospel of Jesus. You see it there in the extraordinary miracles we're told there in verse 11. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen an ordinary miracle, but these were extraordinary miracles, which is sort of like you know superlative on superlative. And they are pretty amazing, aren't they? Bits of Paul's clothing through which healing comes in Jesus' name to people. There's demonic testimony. The demons are testifying to the power of Jesus. And in particular, there's also this amazing response that people make. It's given a couple of expressions. There in verse 17, we're told that there's an appropriate sort of fear grips the city when they hear about what's happened to the seven sons of Sceva. There's an appropriate sort of fear and the name of the Lord Jesus is held in high honour. But then verse 18 and 19, there's these amazing signs of repentance turning away from the things that they used to trust in. And now they're trusting in Jesus and there's these signs of that transformation, that turning around. In particular, they're burning all their magic books. Now, Ephesus was associated, as we'll see in a moment, with the great temple of Artemis, but also that was associated with magic and so it was a bit of a centre for magic and sorcery. They bring their books, these people who've come to believe in Christ, they bring out of their houses all these magic books and they group them together and burn them. And the value, as far as I could work out, Luke is telling us, is the equivalent of, in today's dollars, 10 million Australian dollars worth of magic books that they're burning. That's, that's a lot, isn't it? That's a pretty impressive sign of repentance. And you can see there Luke's summary in verse 20. The word of the Lord literally grew mightily. That is, I think he's saying grew in extent but also was powerful or prevailed. That is, it's talking about its effectiveness. The word of the Lord was effective. Now, there's a way in which when you read these stories, you can think, wow, the the battle is between Paul and those who oppose him. And certainly that will seem like that when you get to the next episode, which we're coming to. However, that's not the battle at all. The battle's not between Paul and his opponents. No, the battle is between the one true living God, whose word, whose gospel about Jesus is powerful, and all the pretend gods, the would-be gods, the fabricated gods, the idols that people had actually invested their lives into. That's really the challenge. And here's your summary. The word of the Lord, the word of the one true Lord Jesus, only Son of the Father, that is what is extending mightily and prevailing, showing its power over the pretend, the pretend gods. Now, it's just worth reflecting on this for a moment. I think we can get very carried away with, wow, you know, the powerful word of God. Yep, I mean, if I saw extraordinary miracles like that, I'd be thinking it was pretty powerful. If 
if I don't know, we had some sort of demonic testimony here at Sydney University campus about the truth of Jesus, that would certainly bring you know, great fear and honour to the name of Jesus. That's true, it probably would. However, the real power here, I don't think was in the miracles. And the real power, I don't think was in the demonic testimony. The real power, the climax of that little episode, is actually the signs of repentance. The real power of God, the way the word of the Lord prevails, is when people are turned by God from worshipping idols, things that are not really God, to worshipping the one true God and his son Jesus Christ. That's the great power of God. So whenever someone comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the powerful word of God at work. That is the powerful gospel of Jesus at work, when someone actually becomes a Christian. Oh, I heard a great news this week that uh, in just in this semester here at Sydney Uni, we know of six international students who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the EU's focus ministry. And you go, oh, six, yeah. Six! Come on! Like, that's awesome, isn't it? Here you see the mighty power of God turning people who are invested in things that are not God's, things that are actually full of destruction, things that are lies, and God has rescued them out of darkness, turned them to his Son, granted them forgiveness of sins and the power of his Spirit, and six, oh, I owe that it be 6,000, but six, that's great, isn't it? Isn't that the power of God in our very midst on this campus? I heard a story just this morning about uh, talking with a, a, a Christian brother and uh, he was talking about you know, the, the struggle, the, the, well not the struggle, he was just talking about you know, walking in holiness, walking as a Christian and he talked about how he and a mate catch up uh, regularly to talk about just how they're going in all things you know, purity wise. And he was saying how his Christian mate, in an effort to just to, because you know, struggling with various aspects of sexual purity in the, in the internet and all that sort of stuff, he'd taken out his, um, his the, uh, it must have been a PC because it was all a bit you know, messy and complicated and technical, but he took out his, you know, the um, web card or something out of his computer and snapped it. He thought, oh man, that's a bit extreme, that's a waste of money, isn't it? Ten million dollars worth of magic books they burned. I tell you, we should take great joy when there's signs of repentance, any signs of repentance, great joy and rejoicing, great encouragement too that God is actually at work in our very midst. You know, the fact that you are a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus, that is an astounding sign of the power of God at work in the world. In your very life, you are testimony to his power. So be encouraged, be greatly encouraged. You see God at work all around you. And pray gives you and me the eyes to see it. Okay, well, we know, and um, this is not news, is it, right? Because if you've been following us in the book of Acts, we know when the powerful gospel of Jesus proclaimed, we've seen in the book of Acts thousands, literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to faith and repentance. It's not news, but it's worth praising God for. But also we know from the book of Acts that when the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed, there is also often significant opposition. We know that, don't we? We've seen that. And that's no different here in Ephesus. And that brings us to the next episode, the offensive gospel of Jesus. I'm looking here at chapter 19, verses 23 to 41. You'll see in verse 23 how this episode starts off. Luke records, about that time, speaking about in Ephesus, there arose a great disturbance about the way, which was how the Christian faith was known as the way. What is this great 
disturbance, this great outrage that arises in Ephesus because of the uh, Christians who were there and the message they were proclaiming. Well, a bit of background, you've got to know that Ephesus was the home of the great temple of the goddess Artemis. There's a uh, picture up on the screen there, sort of one person's representation of what they think it looked like, just from the different... uh, There's a few archaeological... I mean, there's really just some foundations of the building left now uh, if you go to the ruins of Ephesus, but we have accounts of what this temple was like, partly because it was a way impressive building. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So this is a seriously well-known building, the Opera House sort of of its day. Uh, It was apparently the largest building in existence anywhere. So I don't know what the largest building is today, but, you know, whatever it is. But it's, you know, this is a really well-known building, but it's a temple, a place of worship for this particular goddess, Artemis. Well, let's read what happens here. I'm reading from chapter 19, verse 24. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, bought in no little business for the skilled workers there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. This is a seriously large-scale disturbance. No, let's call it what it is. As it's described later on, it's a riot. Uh, you read on there, verse, 20, verse 34, great confusion and outcry continues for several hours, where for several hours straight, they just, the crowd just goes, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great. They just go for several hours of it. It appears to get out of hand, seriously out of hand, with people not even sure why they are there. If you look in verse 32... The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. (laughs) But they keep shouting nonetheless. It is a seriously big sort of riot. Eventually, a key city official, the clerk, restores order. And he restores order. His speech is recorded for us, interestingly. He restores order by pointing out three things. First of all, he points out, actually, Paul and his companions, he says, are actually innocent. They've not done anything wrong here. Secondly, he says, there are actually proper channels that you guys should be pursuing. If you've got a complaint against them, you should use the legal options open to you. And thirdly, he says, the people who are actually in danger of getting in trouble here of being charged are actually you guys who are rioting because if charges are brought against you, you've actually got no good basis for what you're doing. And with that, he sort of restores or comes back to the city. Now, what do we make of this incident? Well, two, two thoughts. First of all, the theme of uh, this incident really is Paul's innocence. That is, Paul had been proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus. It did cause significant offence. People were offended by it. 
But the verdict here of the non-Christian ruling official was Paul's done nothing wrong here. So the theme really is Paul's innocence. Now that's really significant within the whole story of Acts, Luke's big account of the development of the Christian church. Because as we head into the final sections of the book of Acts, it focuses on Paul's subsequent arrest when he gets to Jerusalem, uh, the charges brought against him and multiple trials that he undergoes. So the question of Paul's guilt or innocence is the big question really of the back end of the book of Acts. And here before he's arrested, you can see one of the great big disturbances that arose out of his preaching. But you also get to see a non-Christian who's in a position of, you know, to actually on the ground actually know what's going on, he's actually saying, actually, Paul's done nothing wrong here. And that's significant for us as readers as we head into Paul's arrest trial uh, and the charges brought against him. It helps us, it orientates us, I guess, to understand actually Paul actually is innocent of these charges that are going to be brought against him. Okay, so that's sort of, the, that's, I think, the significance of this episode within the big narrative of the book of Acts. However, I want to focus on a different aspect to this particular episode. Well, get access to it by question. What provoked the disturbance here? Well, you say, well, Paul's proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. However, what does Demetrius actually say about Paul's message? What's the only thing he says about Paul's message? The answer is there in verse 26. In particular, what provokes the disturbance is Paul's criticism of idolatry. Demetrius says, Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. That's the thing that Demetrius highlights, who's the chief agitator of the reaction. That Paul is saying their gods are not gods at all. It's his criticism of idolatry. And here, I guess, is the key point. When Paul announced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ... Part of that announcement was exposing the emptiness of their idols. Part of his announcement was unmasking their gods as not gods at all. Now, I've got a reflection on that for us. Is it true, and I think it is actually, that faithful and effective proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, faithful and effective proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, will always arouse great opposition because it challenges the idolatry of the culture. Faithful and effective proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus will arouse great opposition because it challenges the idolatry of the culture. That is, when I've called this the offensive Gospel of Jesus, I mean it in both senses of the word offensive. I don't just mean it, it causes offence, that it causes people to be offended. I mean that the gospel of Jesus goes on the offence. It's not just defensive. The gospel of Jesus goes on the front foot to unmask the gods who aren't really gods, to actually expose the lie of idolatry. It goes on the front foot. Now, here's a thought. Could it be that one of the reasons we don't see great offence being taken to Jesus on our university campus, could it be that the reason we don't see great offence taken is because we actually pull back from calling out 
the idols of our culture? Could it be that the content of our gospel proclamation lacks this offensive aspect that is being on the front foot and exposing the idols of our culture? I'm not saying we should ever, and we must never, speak the gospel of Jesus in an offensive that is in a rude way. God is very clear to us in the New Testament where to speak his truth with his, imbibing his character, expressing his character, which is one of respect, love and gentleness. And that's how we're to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm asking here about the content of our proclamation. Do we say with Paul, and say it with gentleness and respect, your gods are not gods at all. That is, they can't deliver you on what they're promising. Now, of course, um, when we're talking about idols, as Paul was here, we're not just talking these days about idols made with hands. I came across uh, this quote as I was um, the other day, and I thought I'd share it with you. I think it's really helpful. For a Christian man, Tom Smale, he says, To make gods in the image of man of men is the essence of all idolatry. Whether the resultant idols are the physical artefacts of our hands or the cerebral projections of our minds. And the result of both is an impotent religion that imprisons us in its illusions and distracts and distances us from the genuine sources of our liberation. Uh, you can see that the guy is a bit of a preacher. <laughs> that is, he's not just a theologian, he's actually a pastor, because he likes his, you know, um, the letter I here. That is, you've got the impotent idolatry that imprisons us in illusions. Well, I think that's a really helpful summary of what idolatry does. It's impotent. It can't actually deliver on its promises. It sells you a lie. It sells you an illusion. It's not actually God. But it's not just that you're sold a lie, you're actually imprisoned in that. It's slavery to be fully invested with things that are not God. And he talks about there the cerebral idols can be cerebral projections of our minds. I thought that was a really interesting uh, way of describing what idolatry looks like in our present day culture. We project things from our own minds onto the divine and, and we decide to worship and invest heavily with that. What do you think are the cerebral projections of our mind that our culture, our friends, our family are fully invested in? I think that's a question that's worth reflecting on together. Because if I'm right that in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus we need to unmask the idols of our culture, we need to understand what those idols are, don't we? We need to actually think about our culture, see what people are investing in. Now here's my initial just to get you started thought. Okay, Here's my uh, secular Australia's religious pantheon. What are the gods of our culture? Here's just a thought, and I'm sure you can do way better than this, and certainly as a group we probably can uh, refine this Many times. What's the central idol, you think, in our secular culture? Sex. Sex. That's a good candidate. What else? Loud. Money. Good candidate. Yep. Family. Family. That's a good candidate too. Anything else? 
Okay. Someone said the one that I wanted to land on, self. Did someone say self? Yeah, I, I just wonder if the chief God, the chief God is the idolatry of self. And the little image there would be a mirror, wouldn't it? Where you're worshipping your idol, who you see is yourself. Because who is at the centre of your world? You. It's all about me. I'm at the centre. I'm the most important. Now, it's interesting, this does not necessarily um, get reflected in a person who's a blatant egotist. Your preoccupation with yourself can actually take the form even of incredible self-loathing, of incredible self-pity. That you're so focused in on yourself that you even refuse to hear what anyone, even God, might have to say about your, your value. But often the self, me, is at the centre. And uh, the reason I put this as the primary sort of idol of our culture is because I think this is fundamental to sin. Sin itself is actually placing me in the place where only God should be, at the centre. Uh, John Stott helpfully said that substitution is at the heart of both sin and salvation. And what he, um, it's worth looking up and reading his book, The Cross of Christ, because it's a fantastic book. But what he says about sin is that what happens in sin is that human beings put ourselves at the centre of the picture where only God deserves to be. And we claim privileges and prerogatives that by rights are God's alone, namely to call all the shots. But I think this uh, idolatry of self expresses itself in other ways. Sometimes it dresses, dresses itself up and takes other forms. In particular, and here's just three and you've mentioned some others. Here's one though, the idolatry of rationalism. That is where I elevate my judgments, my reason, above whatever God may have revealed. So God's revelation in the Christian scriptures doesn't stand in judgment over me. No, I stand in judgment over the Christian scriptures, actually. And I get to call what I think is right or wrong with what God has revealed. We elevate human reason. And actually, we elevate my own reason. That's why I think it's actually idolatry of self, just dressed up in a fancy dress. What about, uh, here's another one, which was mentioned by someone, the idolatry of materialism. I think we can be committed to this particular idol in all sorts of ways and for different reasons. Sometimes it's because I've elevated my comfort above all else. So I'm going for the dollars because I'm onto, into my comfort. But it can also be, actually, I'm just really anxious. I'm really worried about the future. I'm worried, you know, GFC and all that sort of stuff. I need to secure my, my future, so I'm committed to this God of materialism. Or thirdly, it can be, this is how I'm going to give myself value. This is how I build up my self-esteem, is by having the most toys. <coughs> so it can be for all sorts of reasons that we fully invest with this particular God, the God of materialism. Um, and it's interesting, I think, in our culture that you know, you've, um, when, when uh, James Packer takes a massive hit for investing um, you know, in uh, gambling and casinos and he loses billions of dollars, we all go, oh, well, you know, it serves you right. But if we try to unmask the idol of middle-class aspirations, materialistic aspirations of the middle class of Australia, I tell you what, you start to get a response the offensive gospel of Jesus. And thirdly, I'd just like to add another one, the um, idolatry of pluralism, religious pluralism. See, what's religious pluralism? 
Religious pluralism is a construct of our own making. Notionally, it's a, it's a philosophical construct or a religious construct to protect the rights of others. I don't want you to tell them what they should believe. I just wonder if most of the time it's actually designed to protect me and my interests. I will defend religious pluralism because I don't really want you or the God you proclaim or anyone else to tell me how I should live. So again, I think it's actually just the idolatry of self taking yet another form. And we could add more here, some of which you mentioned, the idolatry of family, the idolatry of sexuality. The point being this, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ challenges our culture's idolatry in all its forms. Just just for a moment, think about idolatry of self. We're not told here in Ephesus how Paul went about proclaiming it, but we're given a really good insight back in Acts chapter 17 when Paul's in Athens and again confronted by idolatry. How how does he go about proclaiming the good news of Jesus there? He talks about God as their creator. The one true living God who's raised Jesus from the dead is the one who created you, sustains you, loves you. And so this one true God has a call on your life. It challenges and exposes the idolatry of self. And you can see lots of examples, I think, in the New Testament of how the gospel of the Lord Jesus addresses the idolatry of rationalism or of materialism or of pluralism or of the family or of sexuality. So, let's wrap it up. What does effective and faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus look like on our campus? What does it look like? Well, I think two things. First of all, it means unmasking the illusion, the impotence and the imprisonment of our culture's idols. That's what effective and faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus will look like. We need to unmask the idols of our culture, which means we need to understand them, identify them, and then in in grace, love and humility, unmask them for the sake of those who have fully invested into them. But secondly, we need to announce the truth, the power and the liberation that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And see, the reason this is important, I think, is because if we announce the truth of Jesus but don't expose the illusion of idolatry, or if we announce the power in the Lord Jesus Christ but don't expose the impotence of idolatry, or if we announce the liberation that's in Jesus Christ but they don't actually understand the imprisonment of idolatry, then no one's going to understand why the Gospel of Jesus is actually relevant. They're going to think it's just an optional extra. They're just going to think it's some sort of spiritual accessory to add to their life. They're certainly not going to understand that it actually matters, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it matters? What am I saying? That's hopeless. Isn't it? They're not going to understand it's important. Important? That's hopeless too, isn't it? They're not going to understand that it's vital. It's essential, isn't it? Do you want to be imprisoned in an impotent illusion? Or under the grace and power of God, do you want to enter into the liberation, truth and freedom of the Lord Jesus Christ? Um, you know that when we announce this to our world, our campus, uh, people will take offence. A couple of years ago, the EU ran a mission, or well, two missions, I remember. One was, very explicitly, don't buy the lie. <laughs> 
And the whole mission was about trying to expose lies of our culture and telling people, don't buy it. But the one that it caused even more offence was a mission which went under the heading of the Christless life, a life without Christ. And it had uh, talk titles like The Cult of a Christless Family. Trying to talk about the idolatry of family. It had things like The Hell of a Christless Religion. Trying to expose... um, the illusion of, pl- of pluralism. And I'll tell you what, walking around with a hell of a crisis religion in white writing on a black t-shirt as you walk around the campus for two weeks, it aroused all sorts of opposition. People took great offence, but there was something, something right about it. Not that we should ever walk around in superiority or in sort of some sort of sense of... It has to be out of genuine love. It has to be out of respect and gentleness and a concern, a deep-seated actual concern for people. But, but I'll tell you what, it aroused opposition because I think what was happening there was that we were exposing the idols of our culture. So, friend, this is not about superiority. This is about love. And I want to suggest to you that if we're going to effectively and faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus... We're going to need not just proclaim Jesus, but actually expose the lies of our culture for their good. Now, I have um, one minute for questions. If you've got any questions, I'd love to hear them. So the question is, how do we actually tell people? How do we actually help people understand the illusions of their impotent idols that have imprisoned them? I think however you do it, it as I said before, has to be out of love, with gentleness and respect, such that even if they choose not to listen to you, even if they take offence at you, you've actually told them what is true and helpful. Um, And it may be that, you know, just chasing after the big dollars in your sort of graduate career, you know, as a university graduate, because you're worried about, you know, securing your life by I've got to get a good first job so I can get in and get a better job so that I can then get into the right program. Or, and it just might not work like that. You know, Jesus talked about that sort of stuff and just called people who trusted in the things of this world as fools because there's greater issues at hand. Now, they may take great offence to that. They may be offended. They may just refuse to listen. But I think if... If we love people, haven't we got to help them if we know that they're imprisoned in an illusion that will lead to their destruction? Pray lots. And I think be bold. Be bold in love. For their sakes. I close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, that announces to us truth, power and freedom. And we pray, Father, that you might make us bold by your Spirit to proclaim your wonderful truth in the Lord Jesus to our families, our friends, to this campus, indeed our whole city, who are imprisoned in their idolatry. Father, go before us, work in people's hearts and minds so that when they hear the truth of Jesus, they might give great joy to you that there is now freedom and power uh, for them in your grace. We ask it. For Jesus' sake and for the sake of their salvation. Amen.